0: And please turn with me in your Bibles to Job 25. This past Saturday, I was—I I have a Bible study that I attend on Saturday mornings. And as I was talking with the gentleman in this Bible study, we were talking about hymns and um, the richness of hymns doctrinally and the encouragement that they are, and the men and the women that God used to write them. And as we did so, um, I had mentioned and how thankful I was for the legacy of godly men and women in, in the past, and to think that uh, we are still singing these hymns that have been written so long ago. As we were singing uh, that psalm together this morning, my, my mind turned... To that same thought process, and what a tremendous blessing it is to be singing those, these psalms, uh, the words of which were written thousands of years ago in praise unto our God. And for thousands of years, these words have been used to extol our unchanging God. And what a privilege and a blessing it is, though uh, the tunes certainly are, are different and we have changed the words because in, in Hebrew culture we know that rhyme is rhyme of um, thought, not necessarily rhyme of sound. And uh, yet in our English language, uh, as Brother Grishmore mentioned, uh, rhyming and so- of sound is very important to us as we sing. And so things have changed a little bit as far as order and, and certainly the, the tunes and melodies, and yet uh, it's the same message that... David, Solomon, and the remnant from the captivity, and perhaps even Jesus Christ and the disciples as they sung a hymn before they went out to the Mount of Olives on that night before Jesus Christ was slain. Perhaps many of those same words were echoed in the the tongues of all of these godly men and women of times gone by. And I thank the Lord for that heritage that we can carry forth into this generation and give to the next generation. Job 25. We're going to kind of jump right in this morning because there's much to cover. We enter into Job 25 with Bildad's third opportunity to speak. You recall last time we saw Eliphaz's third opportunity to speak. Each, uh, uh, Well, three discourses is the, the whole breadth of the bulk of Job. Uh, each man gets three discourses, and then the pattern will change a little bit. Bildad's third opportunity is a very short opportunity. He speaks very uh, succinctly. It sounds very patient, impatient. Excuse me, and a little bit upset with Job as he speaks. The thrust of his argument, <coughs> excuse me, is this: If God is above all if His armies are numberless, if the grandeur of His creation is as nothing to Him because He is so great, how then can a man who Bildad describes as being a worm be justified with God? Look at chapter 25 of Job with me. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace In his high places, is there any number of his armies? And upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can a man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm. Man is so small, man is so insignificant in the scope of the greatness of God, how can a man be justified with God? Well, I'd like us to think about this question a little bit before we move on this morning. The word justified in Job 25 verse 4 is the Hebrew word meaning to be just or to be righteous. As we think about this word, let's trace it a little bit through that particular vein of scriptural truth of justification. The concept of righteousness or of justification in the Old Testament as it is in the New is a descriptive term indicating those actions or intentions that are approved in the eyes of God. Bildad asks, how can a man be justified with God? And the first Old Testament truth that I would like us to see as we answer this question is that a man's actions inherently, in and of themselves, cannot be justified with God. We are familiar with Isaiah 64.6. Many times we use it as we are uh, witnessing, trying to show a man that his own works, that his personal works that those efforts that He would bring are not enough to bring about salvation and are not enough even for Him to call Himself a good person. In Isaiah 64, 6, the Scriptures tell us, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, all of those things that we would attempt to do in ourselves and in our strength, and that we would attempt to conjure up within our ourselves to please God, All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. Isaiah is teaching here in his prophecy that even the best attempts by mankind to be good are futile. For we are born bent toward rebellion, toward wickedness, and toward sin. Simply put, You and I are sinful to the very core of our being. Man is not inherently good. Man is inherently sinful. When given the choice, man is not going to inherently do what is good. He is going to do what he wants, what is best for him, what is best for his pride, what is best for his situation. He is going to be sinful inherently. And we see this all around us, though we don't like to admit it. One of the most difficult things about being a new father, my daughters are 16 months old now, is the tendency to see my children as innocent, to see their actions as pure in intention and in action, or uncorrupted by wrong motivations. You know, we oftentimes think as a child that they don't know what they're doing. Great example, every day I struggle with my daughters. They don't like to come when I call them. When I call my daughters, they get a gleam in their eye, they put a smile on their mouths, and they run the other direction. Almost every time, we're working on it. It's my tendency to say, oh, they just don't understand yet. But they do understand It's my tendency to excuse them because they're so young and innocent, but in their hearts they have a sin nature and they are exercising themselves against the will of their father. My wife and I have a particular advantage in our endeavor to understand our children and their sin nature because we had two at a time. And this gave us a particular advantage because having twins, we got to see the tendencies of their sinful little hearts play out one against another. When my daughters were three weeks old, three weeks old, I noticed the tendency of deceit and manipulation in their hearts. My daughters would lie there in the crib. They couldn't do much else. They would lie there. Their eyes would be all big. They'd be shuffling back and forth, their arms up like this because that's how babies lie. And their their eyes are all big and they're looking around. and one of them would cry. And we would go to that daughter to see what was wrong. It wouldn't appear that anything was wrong, but of course we'd go, we'd give her, we, 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 would, we would check her diaper to make sure it wasn't wet. We would make sure that we had fed them in a decent hour and, and that they were on schedule. Uh, we would do all of these things. We'd make sure that they didn't somehow get their foot caught or something. And then we'd realize that they're fine. Well, when sister number two Notice that Sister Number One got attention when Sister Number One cried. We would see Sister Number Two's eyes dart over to Sister Number One, and then she would just start crying. We knew that there was nothing wrong because we're, she, she's perfectly content until such time as we give attention to her sister. But the minute her sister gets attention, she starts crying. Why? Because she is trying to manipulate her parents into giving her attention. She is telling me that there's something wrong, even though there's nothing wrong, so that she can get the attention that she doesn't want sister to have, she wants to have herself. Three weeks old and the sinful heart of our daughters is manifesting itself. We didn't have to teach them that. When we came home from the hospital, our daughters did not see my wife and I manipulating one another to try to get what we wanted and said, oh, this works, we can start doing this. It was deep in their hearts. It was rooted there already. They are sinful by their very natures. Lying in order to get what they want out of their father or out of their mother. That's one example. I think we could probably go around the room all day and give examples of man's inherent sinfulness. Recognizing, and this is the premise, that there is no man that is good inherently, that men are sinful by their nature. Even those things that we would try to do that are right are, Isaiah 64 tells us, nothing but filthy rags before a holy God when we attempt to fulfill them on our own merit. I'm going to try to do good things, but you know what? Before God, there's, not a, a, there's no amount of good things that can bring us to the standard of God's righteousness. There's a second Old Testament truth that we need to understand as we think about justification, however. However, Man in and of himself cannot be justified before God. However, man's actions and his heart are counted for righteousness when those actions are a believing response to God's promises. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament as well. When a man's heart and actions are a believing response to the precepts and the promises of God's Word, they are counted unto him for righteousness. In Genesis 15 Abraham is promised by God that God was going to give him a son. And that through this son, he would, be, uh, he would have a great nation. That God would make a great nation out of Abraham through this son. Now, there was no reason why God should do this for Abraham. Abraham had not done anything in particular to earn this. Abraham could not have done anything in particular to earn this. There was no merit that earned God's favor whereby God said, in the great lottery of life, Abraham, you are the one because you did this, 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 and this, and I liked that. No, the Scriptures tell us that God chose Abraham, that God called Abraham, that Abraham replied, that Abraham obeyed, that Abraham followed, and that here God said, I am going to give you an heir. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, the Scripture says this, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. When Abraham placed his faith in the promises of God, and acted upon what he knew God had promised to him, it's the Scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. For righteousness, And in the book of Galatians, we see Paul use this as the means by which to prove that in the Old Testament, salvation was still by grace through faith. Salvation from day one of Adam's fall till the day that Christ returns is always going to be by grace through faith. Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. When Abraham heard this promise, he placed his faith in that promise so that he then acted and reacted in his life based upon the full assurance that God's promise would come to pass and God counted it for righteousness. Now in other words, Abraham was counted as righteous not because of anything he had done, but because of the faith that he put in what God would do. Abraham was counted as righteous not because of any action on his part, any merit on his part, but because he believed in what God said God would do and that was counted unto him for righteousness. He was counted as righteous not because of his action, but because of the basis for his actions. Because of belief. Because his basis was a proper response and complete faith that God's promises would be fulfilled in his life. Now, before we apply these truths to the book of Job, let me just state that God's operation has never changed in regard to justification, in regard to righteousness. From the day that God created Adam and Adam fell to sin, to the day that you listened to My voice and beyond, God has always reckoned righteousness based upon a man's willingness to fully trust in the precepts and the promises of God and His Word. And so today, just as with any other time in created history, a man is found righteous before God not because of what he does, but when he puts faith in what God has said and done. Not through his own merit, but through what God has done as he places his faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ according to the Word of God, the promises and the actions of God on His behalf A man is counted as righteous. We'll come back to this at the end. But now, for now, we've answered Bildad's question. He says, How then can a man be justified with God? How is it, Job, that you can say that you are innocent before God? Well, we know from scriptures, last week was a tremendous example, that Job was a man that believed God's promises. But more than just an answer, there's great wonder and great blessing in Job's response as we'll read it in just a few minutes because not only is Job's response that a man needs to trust in God to be justified with God, but beyond that, Job's actions and Job becomes a living demonstration in, this cha- in the chapters to come of a man who believes God. Job begins in chapter 26 by extolling the greatness of God above man. He has no bone to pick with Bildad or with any of the men for that matter. Eliphaz and Eliphaz's statements last week about them stating unequivocally that God is above man, that God is greater than man, that God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts, that God's ways are higher than man's ways, that God is supreme. He has no problem with that. In a manner of speaking, Job is agreeing with Bildad's premise that God is far greater than man. But Job actually addresses God specifically here and immediately. He doesn't address the the comforters at all. And how do we know that? Well, we know that because as we look in Job 26, verse 2, he immediately begins using the first person, or excuse me, the, the, the second person singular pronoun, thou, instead of you or ye. Normally Job begins by saying, You or ye are terrible comforters. You are terrible comforters. And we see through the you or the your in our King James translation that he's speaking to the group. And then when he turns his eyes to God and he begins talking to God, the pronoun changes from you or your, plural, to thee or thou, singular, in our King James version of the Bible. And so we know when Job is speaking to God and we know when Job is speaking to his companions because the second person pronoun changes from plural to singular. And here we begin right out the gate with the singular pronoun, thou. So we know that Job is speaking to God here. And as he addresses God, he states in verses 1-3 through that no man has any strength against God. No man has ever given God wise advice that God is above all creation. We know this, Job knows this, Bildad knows this, uh, Eliphaz knows this, they all know this. He extols God's creative power in verses 4-13, through declaring God's creation to be wondrous, to be high and fully at His command. Not only is God's creation incredible as we look around us, but God is in control of His creation. God, His hand is over all that is and all that happens in His creation. When we see the lightning in the sky and we are amazed at creation, God's hand is on creation. When we go to the ocean or to the sea and we see those waves crashing against the sides of rocks, God's hand is on those waves. God is in control of His creation. He extols God's creative power. In verse 14, he finishes this chapter with a vindication of God's wisdom declaring that no man can understand God's ways. He says, Lo, these are parts of His ways, but how little a portion is heard of Him but the thunder of His power, who can understand? We see His ways, but we can't understand His ways. We see the evidences of God's power and of His greatness, but that doesn't mean we can always place them into a category. As Brother Grismore and and Mr. Troy and I have been putting together a budget for the church, a budget which we'll be presenting at the end of today in our business meeting, you know, one of the things you do when you create a budget is you categorize everything, all of your spending. You categorize it so you can see what you're spending on what. You can keep yourself accountable to not spending too much in certain places. We have to take each of those expenses, and it can be difficult sometimes to categorize all of those expenses. What, Where would this fall, and what category could we... Could we Place this. Do we need to create a new category? Well, as Job is extolling God's creative power here, he says, I can see God's power. I can see God's ability, but that doesn't mean I can always categorize it. That doesn't mean I can always place it in some, some boundary. That doesn't mean I can always understand it. I don't always know what God is doing when He's doing things, but I see that it's His power. Now as Job transitions into chapter 27, it almost seems as though Job's frustration reaches a climax. His circumstances, it seems, have driven him to the very end of himself. His so-called comforters have accused him nonstop. They have gone so far not only to accuse him of sin, but they are now blaming him for the death of his children and the loss of his livelihood. They are physically saying, Job, your children died because you're a sinner. Your children are dead because of you. And what we see as we think about Job's suffering, as we think about Job's difficulties, what we need to see today as we get into our two points this morning is this. In the midst of great difficulty, you and I must focus upon God and believe in God's sovereignty and God's promises. We're going to look at two different elements of focusing upon God this morning. The first one, in verses 1-6 through of chapter 27, in the midst of your circumstances, focus upon God. We talked about this at length last week, but we're going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle this morning. In the midst of your circumstances, focus upon God. The Scriptures tell us in verse uh, 1 of chapter 27 that Job continued his Parable. Now, we've been doing some teaching in the book of John about what parables are. And as we we think about parables, we should not try to equate what Job is doing here with a New Testament parable. In New Testament parables, we know parables always go from the known to the unknown. They they, They seek to link the unfamiliar to our lives by transitioning through the familiar. So when God wants to speak, when Jesus Christ wanted to teach about how He keeps His children safe... He used the parable of the sheep and the shepherd because those people that he was speaking to knew about sheep and shepherds and so he could transition from the unknown to the known from the known to the unknown, excuse me, by means of the sheep and the shepherd. He does this quite often. We're going to look at it uh, um, in John 15 with the parable of, of the vine. We're going to just continue to see these parables going from the known to the unknown. Parables also focus upon one truth. So while there's a lot of different elements of symbolism inside parables, there's one truth that the person giving the parable is trying to elaborate on and that one exclusive truth is the one that we ought to focus upon when we're reading the parable. Now, Job is not giving one of those sorts of parables here. Job is giving more of a proverb than he is a parable. We have the word parable here. In the Hebrew, the word can be translated either parable or proverb. And so, we're not talking about a New Testament parable here. We're talking about a parable in in reference to a proverb. Something like we would read in the book of Proverbs. Practical words of wisdom rooted in experience and in the knowledge of God. So Job declares a particular proverb or parable in verses 2-5, through a particular determination upon his heart. We read it this morning in our Scripture reading. If I were to summarize Job's statements, I would summarize it this way. Job says that as sure as God lives, as long as Job lives, he is determined never to justify the accusations of his false comforters by speaking wickedness and deceit. His comforters have told him he's a sinner, have told him that he's forsaken God, have told him that he is deceitful, have told him that he's wicked, have told him that he's a liar, and that he's a thief, that he is uncharitable. They have told him all of these things, and he says, far be it from me to ever justify you by actually being any of these things. I am going to stand in my integrity. As long as he lives, he states, he will hold fast to his integrity. He will give no man cause to accuse him of unrighteousness. And until the day that he dies, until the day that he goes to the grave, he will hold fast his innocence before God and before man. Now, if we're not careful, we as humans can spend large portions of our lives being driven not by a determination to trust God's Word, but by the circumstances that surround us. We are happy and contented people because things are going well. We find comfort in the money that's in the bank, in the insurance policy. We have comfort in these things. But what happens when they come to an end? What happens when our bank account hits the end? What happens when our health hits the end? We've had these things come up in the last few weeks in our church body well, we'll react in some form or fashion. And as we talked about last week, our reaction can be driven by those circumstances or they can be driven by the promises of God. And Job said this, as sure as God is alive and as long as I am alive, I will be faithful to the Word of God. Be faithful to what? What is that? To his sense of justice and fair play? No. Is Job clinging to the hope that there is in fact good in this world and as long as he holds out long enough, good will triumph in the end? No. Is he trusting that love will conquer all? No. He's trusting that God is God. Job is trusting that what God has said is true, that though his circumstances seem to tell him one thing, God's Word, he believes God's Word and what God's Word tells him above his own eyes, above his own understanding, above his own mind. He trusts that God's word is correct when God says He will provide, even though He doesn't. His mind is saying, "Uh-oh, this is not going to happen." His eyes are saying, "This is not going to happen." Job says, "I trust God's word," and so he states boldly that, regardless of the circumstances, he is going to believe what God has to say. In the midst of circumstances, Job focused upon God. Second, and finally, in verses seven through twenty-three, in the midst of wickedness, Job. Focused upon God. As we look in the book of Job, he has some people problems, doesn't he? His comforters have reviled him. They've accused him of killing his own children in his wickedness. Job 19.17 told us that his wife is avoiding him. Job 19.18 tells us that young children won't come anywhere near him. But you know, probably Job's biggest problem, biggest people problem, is the problem of the wicked. Because as he looks around the world, in Job's quarter of the world, he is suffering, he is in need, though he's maintained his innocence, and there are wicked people all around him that are prospering. We talked about this a little bit last week as well. But as Job completes the rest of this chapter, he states the end of the wicked man, not from the perspective of a man or from an earthly perspective, from the frame of man's days, but from the perspective of God and from a time frame of eternity. In these verses, he almost seems to state the very thing that his comforters have stated. That the wicked will be punished, that their children will reap consequences of their sin, that judgment will be swift and sure. All of these things Job says, but there is a difference. And the difference is, whereas Job's companions placed all of their faith for what they were saying in the here and now based upon what their eyes have seen and what they want to believe from the teaching of their forefathers, Job rests upon the spiritual promises of God regarding the wickedness of this world. And so he states in verse 8 that the hypocrite has no hope, for regardless of his life's delights, his soul shall be taken in eternal judgment. He states in verse 13 and 14 that the portion of the wicked men will ultimately be destruction and spiritual decay. Even in their prosperity, there will be no eternal satisfaction. He states in verse 16-20 through 20, that the end of the days of the, uh, of the wicked man, though he might have plenty in this life, will be death, just like any other man, and judgment. And so as Job's second determination is stated, he's really just simply stating an extension of the first. Job was determined that regardless of the circumstances he found himself in, regardless of what he saw around him, he would trust God and he would trust God's Word. He would trust that God is in control. He would trust that God is sovereign. He would trust and have confidence that man's righteousness before God is not a byproduct of material prosperity, but of spiritual potency. He would trust that God's Word is true and that the man who obeys the Word of God is blessed beyond measure regardless of what his physical circumstances are attempting to tell him. And if Job was willing to trust God in the midst of his circumstances, which were terrible, surely he could trust God with the circumstances of the wicked as well. If you are willing to trust God, that God is in control over your finances, over your health, over this church and how this church is going, that God is in control over these aspects of your life, can you not trust as well when you read the news and you see wickedness all around you? When, there, when you see wicked men leading this country? When you see wicked men all around the world and you see their wicked devices seeking to come to pass? Can you not trust God that wickedness will one day find its reward? If we can trust God for us, if we can trust God for our circumstances, then let's read God's Word and trust Him in regard to what He says is to come as well. But you know, this confidence doesn't just happen. This confidence doesn't rest simply in what we see of the wicked. It doesn't rest in what we know of the wicked circumstances. It's a confidence that must rest as we trust the Word of God. As we obey the Word of God. As we make God's Word our everything. And as we think about the judgment of God, the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, we must recognize as well that the judgment of God touches every man, not simply unbelievers. See, if we live in a way in which we are trusting the Word of God for all things, if every step we take is a circumspect step, as the Scriptures tell us, to walk circumspectly according to the Word of God, keeping the Word of God in front of us, taking each step in accordance with the Word of God. As we do that, things become dramatically different in our lives from the lives of those around us. If we live as Jesus Christ commanded, not by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, then our lives will be very different. See, my heart tells me that it is more blessed to receive than to give. My heart tells me that if I receive things, I will be much happier than if I give things. But God's Word tells me it's more blessed to give than to receive. Am I going to trust what my heart and my mind thinks? Or am I going to trust what God's Word says? You can't have it both ways. You can't get things for yourself and hoard and not give and still seek the blessing of God. It doesn't work that way because the blessing of God comes in giving. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Which do we believe? My heart tells me that lusting after things, that coveting those things that aren't mine, that wanting power, all of those things that we see that are so uplifted in this life as the ideals, my heart tells me that power and possessions, all of those elements, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, are what I want. But God's Word tells me that those things are wrong. That I ought not covet. That I ought not allow lust to rule in my life. That I ought to be content with such things as I have and that I would do much better to lay up treasure in heaven and not upon this earth. Which do we believe? See, we can't have it both ways. Our eyes will tell us that power... And that the desires of this life are what we want and we can, tr- we can get them and we can be happy. The Scriptures tell us that if we're content with such things as we have, that if we avoid the works of the flesh in our lives, that if we avoid adultery and fornication and lasciviousness and uncleanness and idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and variance and all of those things that we memorized in Galatians 5, if we, if we shun those things, if we avoid the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, there will be blessing. We can't have it both ways. We can't say we're trusting God's Word but hoard these things to ourselves. It doesn't work that way. Are you trusting God's Word? Do you believe God's Word above what your body tells you? What your mind tells you? Do you believe God's Word above what your logic tells you? See, Abraham was told by God that he would have a son. And Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. Job stood in his righteousness before God. And even though his circumstances were falling apart around him, he said, God's word is true. I have kept to God's word. Therefore, I am right with God in the midst of his circumstances. You know, there are many under the sound of my voice who love God. I believe most under the sound of my voice, if not all under the sound of my voice. Love God. But there are those, under the sound of my voice, that though you love God, you don't truly trust God's Word. say, of course I trust God's Word, Pastor. You trust God's Word in mind. You trust God's Word in theory, but your actions prove otherwise. You say it's more blessed to give than to receive, but you won't give. You say, if I avoid the works of the flesh, the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, I'll be blessed by God. This is what God wants from me. I believe that from God, but then you engage in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You know what God says is true, but your lives don't reflect what you know. You claim to live for God, but you are driven by the material world around you, by your senses. If you believe in God, but you don't trust God to know what's best for you, then you will not obey Him, even if you are His child. Even if you are a born-again believer. If you don't trust God, you will not obey God. I would like each of us to take an inventory of our hearts this morning. I'd like us all, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to determine how much we trust God. Now we don't have time to walk through a list of commands, but I've mentioned some this morning. Many of us know the expectations of God's Word upon us as men and women. Is what we think, where we go, what we say, what we watch on television, what we do on the computer, is where we go in our vehicles is how we interact with one another is what we do on Sundays in this building is it all reflective of people who trust the Word of God above what we see with our eyes. With our ears. here with our ears. What we do. That's where we ought to be as believers because that's where Job was and Job came to a point where in the midst of his circumstances he could still praise and justify God because he believed God's Word above his own circumstances. Job said, regardless of circumstances, regardless of what the wicked are doing around me, I will trust God. I will stand in my integrity. I will do what's right. And today it's time for us to focus upon God as well. And if you're willing, if you are willing to trust God with those elements of your life that you haven't given to Him yet, because you feel like when you give it to God, things are going to be, they're not going to be fun anymore, Uh, you're you're not going to have any enjoyment anymore, Um, you need that, you want that, you must have that. When you're willing to take those elements that you know are wrong according to God's word and get them out of your life, you are willingly trusting the word of God above what you believe to be best for yourself. And that's where God wants us. Trusting his word above what you even perceive with your eyes your, and your ears.